Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, and I'm your American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our co-hosts, Dr. Sajin Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hi. And today we're going to talk about COVID. Um, I know there's been lots of stuff in the news and tons of um, information out there, and hopefully um, this will kind of shed some light on um, COVID and more things we can do and how to take care of ourselves. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do! The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of Americans' family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. So like our previous COVID episodes, uh, we kind of start with the numbers to talk about where we're at with this uh, pandemic and kind of see where Fresno County is compared to California, United States. So Sajin, let's uh, tell us the numbers. So in the U.S., we are now over 2 million cases, and that's 116,000 deaths. Um, in California, we have about 136,000 confirmed cases and about 4,700 deaths. And in Fresno County, as of June 10th, uh, there are 2,318 cases, and there are a total of 49 deaths. Locally here, I'm um, just talking about American Ambulance for a minute. You know, um, sadly, we've had two American Ambulance crew members have tested positive for COVID. Um, and we have transported 137 COVID positive patients. And so it feels like the saga continues, you know, that this definitely is a marathon. And um, we are under constant stress and what I call PPE fatigue, right? We're sick of it. I'm tired of wearing it. You know, all of us at the hospital are wearing PPE constantly. And um, we really just want this pandemic to be over already. Um, but let's talk about some ways that we can kind of help ourselves, help us fight this stress, and let's talk about PPE. I mean, I think the bottom line is you have to keep wearing it. It's really our only weapon against COVID, um, and so you really have to wear a mask. Um, you're not even allowed to enter our hospital without a mask on. And so um, now as we're seeing more businesses opening up again, a lot of them have their own rules in place, like for example, like you can't go into Costco without a mask on and things like that. And that's being done for a reason because so far it's been the only thing that has shown to help uh, prevent the spread of COVID. And although exhausting, we need to keep wearing PPE um, on all patient encounters. And let's just review that for the policy for American Ambulance. So every patient encounter, you have an N95, you have eye protection, which is your goggles or glasses and gloves. Now, if you have um, somebody that you suspect aerosolizing procedure, respiratory droplets are anticipated, maybe it's a code, maybe it's someone's coughing, you're going to add a splash gown and a face shield. Um, and this is the must. I mean, that's the minimum. You've got to have your mask on, your eye protection, your gloves on, and then you can add the gown and face shield. And just so you know, we are right here with you. We do this in the hospital all the time. I am so sick of wearing my mask and face shield and gloves, but you got to. Um, it's one of those things where it's really the only thing we can do to protect ourselves. And only, and already two of our own um, in American Ambulance have um, tested positive for COVID. Luckily, not hospitalized, doing fine. Um, just to share in our, at CRMC, you know, we have 16 people at CRMC, or I should say CMC, the whole 
community system that are tested positive for COVID. So it's happening to our own, to our healthcare providers. And so the way to protect yourself and to protect your families is to be is to wear your, your gear. So SEMSA kind of addressed um, moving away from intubation. We talked about this a little bit in our last uh, podcast. So now we're into the supergodic airway. So our go-to airway is either the king tube or the eye gel. The king tube's on its way out and the eye gel's on its way in. You'll be seeing training going on at different stations. Um, and the idea was that intubation is a very, very high-risk procedure. And the idea is that your exposure to COVID is very um, is very great. And so we want you to use the eye gel or the king tube. And the idea is that um, when you bag, you can also have the cover over the patient's um, that way everyone is is protected. And like all things that we do, um, don't forget that just because there is a supraglottic airway in, that don't assume that it's a closed circuit. Unfortunately, there is st- still air leak. There is still the potential for uh, contamination and for aerosolization of whatever particles are coming from the patient's lungs and airway. Um, so even if there is an eye gel in, please remember to continue to uh, place a shield over the patient, a covering over the patient, and protect yourselves. So let's talk about how we take care of ourselves during this pandemic. You know, um, there's a lot of things about taking care of patients, and one thing's in healthcare, we're not really good about taking care of ourselves. So um, what are some recommendations? Um, what can we do um, with regards to sleep? Um, those of you who don't know me don't know my obsession with sleep, but I really firmly believe it's the best thing you could do for your immune system. It's so important to, um, it's not just to fight stress, but like you actually need to have um, deep sleep and REM sleep for your immune cells to actually function better. Um, And so this is really hard in our world because we all work shifts. And so sometimes where our circadian rhythms are jumping around, but you have to try to figure out you know, when you're going to be able to to sleep, to sleep properly. For example, like if you have to sleep during the day, make sure you have blackout curtains. If you don't, you can put foil up on your windows and tape them in. You can wear an eye mask. Um, I personally, like I work very late. And so I have to be able to sleep in in the mornings because I'm at work till 1 a.m. sometimes. So I always wear an eye mask. Um, But you have to, you know, shut out the light, kind of do all these things to take care of yourself and the impact of sleep debt on um, not just your immune system but on metabolic and endocrine function is huge there was a great study in lancet in 1999 mm -hmm. i know that sounds old but it was very well done and it looked at carbohydrate metabolism so how you broke down carbs thyroid function um, in men um, after a time in bed to either four hours per night for six nights and so if you just got four hours and sleep a night for six nights you had a huge um, problem with your ability to break down carbohydrates, you basically became like a pre-diabetic. And so your glucose tolerance was lower when you had all the sleep debt. Um, your cortisol concentrations, which are like your stress hormones, are super high. And um, and that mess with your sympathetic nervous system. So the conclusion of this had a very negative impact on your cardiovascular and immune system um, compared to people who had uh, more sleep. So if you had 12 hours in bed per night for six nights, you totally recovered and your measurements were were normal. That's a big deal. I mean, it is actually affecting your health. Um, And then I think, you know, a lot of people hear about like, you gotta get eight hours a night, eight hours a night. Now, 
that's not the same for everyone. So I think everybody has to figure out for themselves what their body likes. My body prefers eight and a half hours. I never get that because I have a three-year-old. Um, but you really have to figure out what the ideal is for your own body. Maybe it's seven hours for you. Maybe it's nine hours. But you really have to try to prioritize um, sleep in order to be able to keep functioning and working in this um, heightened state um, because this pandemic is not going anywhere anytime soon. Another thing that we really need to um, think about is, well, what else can you do to help your immune system? Well, nutrition is key. And um, it sounds so generic, right? Like good nutrition. You're like, well, what? A, I mean, yeah, we all know that. But it actually has a profound effect on your immune system and disease susceptibility. You're getting a lot of key vitamins and minerals um, from fruits and vegetables. And, um, and really, instead of stress eating, for example, like um, I can eat a whole package of Costco-sized like Oreos in one sitting, but I know that that's going to like kind of shoot my immune system for the next week. So you really have to think, okay, like how am I going to function my best? So that's going to be, you know, increasing your fruit and vegetable intake. You got to get your iron, zinc, vitamins A, E, B6, B12. These you can get through food. You can also additionally get through supplements. And these are all going to kind of help you. And um, I want to jump in on food yeah. for nutrition for a second here. One thing with shift workers and maybe Sajan, you can comment on being a shift worker. It's hard to plan, right? You're exhausted. You're tired. You go up at 1 a.m. You don't want to go home and make yourself a salad, right? So you got to like plan your food, plan your food meals. Or I don't know, Sajan, what do you do personally? Like how do you, you do a lot of shifts, a lot of jumping back and forth between shifts. Yeah, it helps that I have a partner that helps keep me accountable, but also helps share the workload. So my wife helps me uh, cook a lot when I can't cook. And then just like you said, we actually have to plan out our meals for the week and plan out our, our shopping ahead of time, um, especially in this uh, COVID world where, you know, access to grocery stores and things, we're trying to limit our exposures and exposure to other people. Um, planning uh, big trips and then planning to cook once or twice a week and planning out our meals for the rest of the week. And I think it helps keep you on track too, that you're having a healthy balanced diet if you know what you're eating for the whole week. So that way, you know, if you have a stressful day, maybe you're packing things with you. I know the crews sometimes don't have time to stop and they're bringing their, their food with them in, in their ice chest. And so it's nice to plan that out. So you well, get your vitamins. Danielle, you're probably the busiest human I know. What are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, so I am starting to food plan in that um, we I use Instacart for grocery shopping, but I make my meals in my mind first and then order the groceries that go for that. Because I know if I have a bunch of frozen pizzas in the freezer, guess what? The kids are eating frozen pizza. But if I don't have frozen pizzas in the freezer and I've already planned out the chicken, the beef, and then I take some for myself. And so I like to always have a now a protein bar in my bag or like a pre-made peanut butter and jelly sandwich, something healthy. So just in case you can't, because we're not doing any fast food. Um, and most of that's just for convenience and for lifestyle because fast food really has no good nutrients in it for us. And it's really just a comfort food. And to validate my no fast food, there's actually a great study that looked at how negative emotions predict our alcohol consumption, our saturated fat intake, which is fast food, and our physical activity. So, you know, I have a really bad case at work, right? Somebody dies and I'm really sad. I want to go home and have a Big Mac and French fries, right? Or I want to go have a burrito. And so I feel like food and alcohol kind of make us all feel better when we have bad cases. So I don't know about you medics listening. I'm sure it's like, sometimes you say to yourself, I just need a beer when I get home. And really that's bad for us, but the studies show that's what happens. So 
our habits are totally affected by the stress and duress and emotional disturbance that you're under. So I try to now change my thought process and say, you know what, I don't need that beer. What I need to do is go on a walk or I need to go for a run or get on the treadmill or do something to stress relief. And that's going to be a positive cycle for you that uh, channeling that positive energy, doing something productive with your time as opposed to doing something that's detrimental to your health actually helps you feel better and helps you navigate the rest of your day even better. Right. And I think it's our responsibility in COVID-19, just like it's our responsibility to wear N95s, is also take care of ourselves and say, you know what, with my time off, I have to choose a healthy lifestyle. I have to eat lots of fruits and vegetables. And I have to exercise my free time and get sleep. Because um, like Patil says, I'm a new believer in sleep, uh, that you need to get your sleep. You feel so much better. And then the duress, I think the stress you're under won't affect you as badly. So there's a study in South Korea actually very recently in the last year looked at the perception between sleep and perceived stress. So people had the same stress put on. And this might be the stress of running out of N95 or taking care of a COVID patient. If you slept seven to nine hours of sleep a night, you didn't perceive that as really a stress at all. But if you slept less than seven hours, you perceive that as a great stress to your body, a stress to your mind, and you were very upset by it. So it kind of shows that our perception of stress in the world is really predetermined by our sleep. Well, and then your perceptions have physiological impact because you perceive that and your cortisol levels are going to go up. That's going to mess with your blood sugar. It's going to mess with your heart rate. And, And so something that was just a perception is going to become a physical reality. And so you can combat that within yourselves by taking care of yourselves. And also drink lots of water. I mean, I can't even emphasize that one enough, but just lots of water. And now I um, I think everybody just saw me. I was like eating an apple after lunch. I have an apple in my bag at all times now, which I never did. But uh, just you just have to kind of prioritize yourself so that we can all um, kind of take care of each other and take care of our patients better. How about supplements? Um, Sajin, you know, there's a lot of talk out there about supplements in the world. What's your take? Are you doing any supplements? Do you think there should be any vitamin supplementation? I do take a vitamin B supplement, uh, mostly because I'm vegetarian and I want to get all the vitamins that I can get. But um, I know there is a recent study in the British Medical Journal um, talking about vitamin D supplementation. Yeah, there is a large meta-analysis of patients. There's like 11,000 patients that were um, from 25 different randomized controlled trials that looked at vitamin D, D as in dog. And so vitamin D supplementation, it protected you against acute respiratory tract infections. So it's interesting for those of us who are fighting this pandemic of COVID, which is a respiratory tract infection, if you had very low vitamin D, um, you uh, gain the most benefit from supplementation. And so it helps fight off that infection. And so um, there's a recent study just in May 2020 published out of Lancet, which is a big journal basically vitamin D and COVID. And so in Europe, the COVID-19 mortality was significantly associated with vitamin D status. So if you had a low vitamin D population, you had much higher mortality. And the one thing about vitamin D, it doesn't really hurt you. It comes in gummies, it comes in capsules, it comes in milk, it comes from the sun. So I say, what can it hurt? You get a little extra vitamin D, it can't hurt you. It can only help. So my take home point, uh, I'll say it early, is start your vitamin D. Uh, So speaking of... um you know, COVID symptoms and mortality in Europe. Um, there have been some new signs and symptoms as we're learning about this disease and as we're learning about the progression of the inflammatory response. We've kind of learned more about the presentations that uh, we see every day. So the CDC has added a few new symptoms to the list for coronavirus. Basically, all the viral symptoms that we had not included before are now included chills, muscle pain, headaches, sore throat 
shaking with chills, loss of taste and smell, I think we had discussed before. There have been also quite a few new skin rashes. Um, some appear like tiny red spots, others are larger, flat or raised lesions. Some can look like hives. Um, I think we mentioned before about the COVID toes, which are little purpura and look almost like frostbite. Um, it's not clear exactly how or why these are happening, but um, COVID tends to be doing kind of everything and anything. Right, and it seems like amp up your immune system, so your immune system response to this virus can be very varied. You know, some people have no problems, other people get very sick from it and have all these symptoms. Now, what about kids? You know, there's a lot in the news. Are kids getting really sick? Are kids not getting too sick? Like, how much we got to worry about our children at home? So there was a study that was just published in the Journal of Pediatrics, and they looked at 2,000 children who tested positive for COVID in China. And most of them had very minimal upper respiratory infection type symptoms, so over 90%. But 6% of them did have severe or critical illness. And now we're actually seeing a, a very small number of kids, just some case, a few case reports here and there, of kids developing a Kawasaki-like disease, which is basically a, a pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome. And so there's been about 112 confirmed cases. And this is a, a big deal because um, these kids have had significant inflammation of multiple organ systems and kind of look like a combination of Kawasaki disease and toxic shock. So they have fever, swollen lymph nodes, rash, conjunctivitis, edema, cardiac inflammation. They can even go into hypotension and shock. Um, and just and for so, clarification for everyone listening, so Kawasaki's, if you don't know, it's a syndrome. It's a mucocutaneous, meaning it involves your, your mucous membranes and your skin, and lymph node syndrome. And so it's basically like an inflammatory, and nobody knows what causes it. So it's just a constellation of symptoms that kids present with. And the reason why everybody knows about Kawasaki's is because it has some heart problems. So it causes inflammation in your vessels and they get coronary artery aneurysms as kids, right? So they're three years old, they present with fever and all the things Patil listed, the rash, their eyes are inflamed, conjunctivitis, and then they usually get better. It's very rare, but nobody knows why it is. And then now this same constellation, constellation of symptoms is happening with COVID in children in very rare cases. And there's no good treatment for it. So we just... Um and as a parent, that kind of scares me, right? It's like, I want to protect my children. I don't want them to be one of these case reports or the 6% who develop severe and critical illness. But the problem is we don't know who's going to get sick and who's not. Um, so that's why we still have to be safe. And um, I have my kids wear cloth masks. So just so you know, so if you see us out at the store, you will have my kid. One has a Batman and one has a spider web on it. And yeah, so um, Oh, do you? So uh -huh. she has a son who's three, minor six and eight, and um, they've embraced it because they're so sick of being at home. They're like, oh my gosh, if I can go outside, I will wear this mask. And they do, and they keep it, and they actually don't mind. I think we adults mind it more than the kids do. So I say, if you've got masks at home, put them on your kids. If you're going to the farmer's market or you're going to get food at a restaurant, put the mask on them. It can't hurt because you don't want your kid to be one of those 6%. And it's really important to continue to do this because as we learn more about the numbers and the spread, um, we're actually finding that COVID may be a little more infectious than we had previously thought. Um, previously, um, on this podcast, we had mentioned some numbers involving the r naught, which is the infectious rate of one individual. How many people will they infect? And that previously had been thought to be around two to three. So for every infected person, they'd infect two or three other people. Um, in certain conditions, um, if you remember the Princess Cruise Line, where they were all sheltered together, the r naught was 15. 
And now with the updated numbers, we're actually seeing that the R naught may actually be between four and a half and six and a half. So every infected person can infect four and a half to six and a half other people, um, which is a lot more than we th had thought previously. Several regions and cities have been rolling out testing on serum. Uh, it's a blood test as opposed to the swabs. And for example, in Los Angeles County, the prevalence of antibodies was four and a half percent. And that implies that about 350,000 adults in LA County have COVID antibodies, which is 43 times higher than the confirmed cases by PCR. This kind of makes sense, right? Because the asymptomatic spread, or you might have low um, symptoms or not need hospitalization, but have it and still give it to four and a half to six and a half people. Right. Yeah, so yeah, great proof of the asymptomatic spread and how far it can go. And so that's why we still need to keep socially distancing and wearing masks. What about the case fatality rate, Sajin? Like, do you think it's the same as flu? Is it worse than flu? Is it better than flu? So this is one that's been bouncing around the entire time since we learned about COVID. We've been trying to compare it to other diseases and viruses that we know. Um, one example is the Princess cruise ship, as we mentioned earlier. The case fatality rate for the Princess cruise ship was at 1.8%. And ages to age adjusted to reflect the general population, the case fatality rate is about 0.5%. So that actually puts it five times that of the seasonal flu. Right. So I know a lot of people like to say, oh, what's the big deal? This is not as bad as influenza. Lots of people die from influenza every year. So we do worry about influenza, but this is five times worse than seasonal influenza. That's why I think it's important for you to protect yourself and protect your families and wear the mask because they're, they're out there wear your uh, protective devices of like your N95s on your calls, like be really diligent. Um, because this is something that we want to help protect ourselves until that vaccine comes out or if this just passes over and burns out, right? We have a hope that maybe enough people get it and stop spreading it, then the virus can't live without us. Speaking of testing and vaccines and thinking about um, what's next, um, Patil, tell us what's the latest update on testing. So the good news is testing has become a lot easier and we're getting faster turnaround times with our tests. Um, the test that we're still doing is the viral swab up into the back of the nose. It's a PCR test. At our hospital, CRMC, it takes two to 10 hours to come back, uh, depending on how the samples are batched. Um, um, but that nasal swab, the one that goes, you know, all the way back, um, the nasal pharyngeal swab is only 70% sensitive for the disease. And uh, some of it depends on user error. So if the swab really didn't go all the way back up into your nasopharyngeal cavity, you're going to have um, kind of not as good of a test. And so it might come back negative when it was truly positive. And they're trying to grab those viral particles that are stuck up in your nose. So I think that's why it's hard because it's not a serum. It's not a blood test. It's like grab particles and yeah. then see if they're there. It's not a comfortable test. The CDC has talked about um, instead of doing a nasopharyngeal swab on one side to do nasal swabbing only. So that's like the front of your nose on both sides. Um, but it's really not as good um, as the nasopharyngeal swab, which already is not a perfect test as we've discussed. What about vaccines? So that's the thing that everybody wants to know about. Um, just as a quick refresher in terms of how we develop a vaccine and why it takes so long, um, basically vaccines go from a preclinical testing, which is usually in animal models, and then 
there's three phases. The first two phases are safety phases. So phase one is usually the vaccine is given to a small number of people. We see if it has any bad side effects. Phase two, we give it to a few hundred people and we expand the age range and we are still just assessing safety. Is this gonna cause any major adverse reactions? And then we get to phase three, which is where we give the vaccine to many, many people and see them over time, see if they develop immunity and see if they get the disease. So as you can imagine, it takes many months to get through even just the first two phases, which are really important uh, to determine whether these vaccines are safe, which is, of course, first and foremost, if we want to give this to a lot of people, we want to make sure it's safe first. The U.S. government has what they call Operation Warp Speed, which they've given funding, extra funding, to five different projects and to try and accelerate the speed at which these vaccines are developed. Um, just a few names for those of you who are interested. Uh, Moderna is kind of the one that has been the most popular. That's a Warp Speed project that's currently in phase two, and they're aiming to have their vaccine ready by July 2021. The German company BioNTech in, with Pfizer is another warp speed project. They are in phase one and phase two. The next warp speed project is uh, AstraZeneca and Oxford University based, and they're still in phase two. And then the other warp speed one is by Johnson & Johnson and a medical center in Boston, and they're still also in preclinical and phase one trials. So things are still fairly early in the pipeline. They're still trying to accelerate things as much as possible, but it still may take a while before we get anything. Now, um, I'm not a vaccine expert. And so to me, all vaccines are like dead virus particle. We get a shot. My body makes a new response to this dead virus particle. And now, boom, I have antibodies. Is that what all these uh, potential COVID vaccines are doing? Yeah, so there's a few different ways that we create immunity through a vaccine. Um, some are genetic-based, so they take a sample of viral RNA and they give it to you and hopefully develop an immune response to that. Some vaccines actually use different viruses as a vector to deliver some sort of um, genetic material that your body will develop resistance to. And that's actually um, the way that Merck created the Ebola vaccine was through a viral vector. So they're trying something similar uh, for COVID. There are also protein-based vaccines where they take certain proteins that the virus makes and tries to induce an immune response that way. And then there's also a whole virus vaccine, which is basically the COVID virus, but they try and inactivate all the really dangerous parts and then allow your body to create immunity against that. And then my understanding is that it's hard to develop a vaccine against this because sometimes this vaccine can actually um, paradoxically like enhance the disease. So meaning then um, I get the vaccine, but then it also induces more problems in me. So it's maybe it's worse than if I actually got coronavirus itself. Right. That's what we refer to as immunopotentiation. Basically, it just means that instead of giving us immunity, it's actually causing us to get sick. And that's, of course, the worst case scenario that can be a pitfall of rushing through a lot of these trials if we don't have the right numbers and patient population to test this on in the first place. All right, and you worry about your HIV patient or your diabetic patient or your elderly grandparent getting this vaccine, and then if they get immunopotentiation, that can actually kill them. And uh, so we want to make sure it's a safe vaccine for everyone. 
Right. I mean, I think that's the thing. There are so many different types of vaccines being developed that work in different ways, and we're gonna. They need really intense um, longitudinal research to know uh, which one's going to be the best one. And so, in the world of vaccine development, it's very rare to actually have a vaccine ready for public consumption within a year, basically. That's going to be very interesting to see, like how what their data looks like and how it all plays out. Um, but um, I I think it's really hard to develop a good vaccine in a year. Okay, a few questions that have come up in the past uh, couple days about uh, COVID that I wanted to ask the group about. So masks, you know, I go to Home Depot. Um, everyone's wearing a mask. I go to Lowe's, no one's wearing a mask. I go to certain restaurants, someone's wearing a mask, someone's not. So what's the take on masks? Patil, share with us, what is the CRMC, the Level 1 Trauma Center in the Valley doing? What are, what are we doing at work? Well, at CRMC, you're not allowed in any of our buildings without a mask on, period. If you don't have a mask, you'll be given a mask at the door and told to wear it. Otherwise, you're not allowed in the building. So it's very black and white um, for, for us. You're in the hospital, you're going to wear a mask or really any of the hospital buildings, whether it's an administrative building or not. And the patients are wearing masks too, even and the patient who's there. all of the patients have to be masked. With so a cellulitis. If you, if you are in the building, it uh, doesn't matter when, what capacity you are there, you have a mask on. Um, now I know businesses are kind of deciding their own rules. And so as an organization, I think Community Medical Centers has decided masks for all. And there's no, there's no end point to this. So it's indefinite. Now, I'm a little confused about uh, case counts. I've heard a lot of people say, well, our cases are going up, but our death rate's going down. You know, we had 100 more positive cases yesterday than the day before. So our case count is definitely going up. But luckily, our death rate's not. You know, we still have a lot of open ICU beds. I know the social distancing was to um, make sure that we are prepared, that we have the ventilators, that we have the ICU beds ready for um, if, if and when the surge happens. So what's your take, Sajin, on all the case counts up, but the death rate's down? I think it goes back to kind of what we were saying earlier in the sense that we are able to get testing a little easier, which is great. Um, It means that we are finding a lot more asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients, which is great for contact tracing and isolation purposes. Um, But it also means that we're finding people who are not quite as sick um, as we were testing before. Um, So in that sense, the death rate is going to go down, but the total number of cases is going to go up. And remember, even then, the current estimate is that this is five times more deadly than the seasonal flu. So it's still up there and something that we need to think about, uh, but just maybe not as bad as we had initially thought, which is great. All right. So with that, let's do our take-home points or can't miss. What, what's your take-home from this uh, podcast? So my take-home point is that we're not, you're not going to get anywhere unless you are also taking care of your own immune system. And so you really have to drink a lot of water, get plenty of sleep, the right kind of sleep, eat well, lots of fruits and vegetables, try to exercise. You know, so many things to try to pack into one day and every day of your life. But um, you really have to um, take care of yourself so that your own immune system is strong so that you can um, deal with what we're facing nowadays. Sajin. Uh, I just want to remind everyone, this is a marathon, not a sprint. We're all in it together. Keep doing what you do. We'll take care of each other so we can take care of our community. And I just really want to hit home. Please, please, please wear your PPE. 
Um, I work with American Ambulance Leadership all the time on ensuring that you guys have the best PPE and you all have N95s and you've got your face shield. And so please use what's in your um, PPE bag. We really want you. And so remember on all your patient encounters, at a minimum, you've got to wear your N95, your eye protection and your gloves. You can add that splash gown and face shield. This is our way to protect you. So in a sense that you can go home and protect your family and you can protect the community that we live so that this stops the spread. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, And we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.